HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program was brought to you by EscapeMaker.com. Visit a farm. Escape through the net. Visit EscapeMaker.com for more. I'm Linda Palaccio, host of A Taste of the Past. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit HeritageRadioNetwork.org for thousands more. All right. Thank you so much for tuning in to the Heritage Radio Network. We are coming to you, as always, live from the back of Roberta's Pizza here in Bushwick, Brooklyn. You, of course, have tuned into the Farm Report. I am your host, Aaron Fairbanks. Uh, every week on the Farm Report, we are exploring the world of food from, from the farm to the table. And I, I don't think I could be more excited. Um, I have some very special in-studio guests all the way from Uganda and then just a few blocks away in Brooklyn. Um, I want to welcome Richard McCarthy, Executive Director of Slow Food USA. Richard. Thank you so much, Aaron. And then Edward Muchibi, who's here from Uganda. Edward is the Vice President of Slow Food International. Thank you so much. So, Eddie, you are here to kick off the good news from Africa Tour. So tell us what are some highlights? What's the good? What is the good news? Um, yeah, uh, first of all, thank you for hosting us. It's a very great opportunity to be here, to be in Brooklyn, to be on this radio, very important radio. I'm here to share the important news from Africa, the bright side of Africa, especially as regard to food, the environment, and also the lives of. Uh, people in Africa to share with everyone about the bright side of Africa. Thank you. I, f- I feel like that is exactly like what we need to hear. I love in some of the promotional material talking about like the Western perception of like what's happening um, across the continent and the, like I know we're missing all of the good stuff. So exciting to, to have some details. So you're here in the U.S. for uh, a couple of weeks. It's a five-city tour. Richard, how did you guys pick where you were going to go? Uh, you know, it, it's interesting. I mean, one of the exciting things about, I think, the global slow food network and about the, the food movement in general is that we work so hard in our own communities to create uh, a sane ecology of local economies, 
uh, to grow new institutions, new relationships. And we work so hard, we sometimes forget that we're not alone. We don't have to reinvent every wheel. Um, problems that we face may be problems others have faced, and there may be solutions out there. And we thought it would be really exciting to not only address the question of um, our perception of Africa as a basket case continent, that in fact there are incredible things happening on the ground, uh, urban gardens, rural farms, school gardens, biodiversity, all of these are cultivating leadership. And it reminds us so much of the leadership that is being cultivated through food in places like Detroit, where land grabbing is beginning to shape the direction of the urban scape and the economy as food becomes a, a, a sort of a, a fuel and a, and a currency for change in Detroit. Of course, the pressures of land and food and neighborhood and food access um, and, and ultimately food sovereignty is, is certainly what we shape shapes our worldview here in New York. Um, in New Orleans, uh, the crisis of Katrina 10 years ago put food right in front and center, so we, we visit New Orleans. And a very hopeful visit is to Petal, Mississippi, where the Mississippi Association of Cooperatives, as part of the Federation of Southern Cooperatives, are really leading the way to save black land loss. And these are issues of land tenure, um, access to food in Detroit, New Orleans, uh, New York, rural Mississippi, and then finally in Sacramento, California. Extraordinary work going on to uh, ensure that good, clean, and fair food is accessible to all. I think sharing that local with global is something we don't have enough opportunity to do. And we thought this would be a great way to do it by bringing a leader who is cultivating a generation of young leaders throughout Africa. Right. So you are at the helm of the 10,000 Gardens in Africa program. What is that? The 10,000 Gardens in Africa program is uh, a project or well, an activity which is born in Africa, which started by us, the young Africans, to cultivate small-scale gardens in every school, in every community. These are small gardens, but it goes far beyond the physical place where people grow crops. It's a meeting point. It's a, a, a place where we meet the old people to pass over the knowledge. It's a place where we preserve our local African biodiversity, the crops, the varieties which have stood by, by us in Africa for all these many years and what we believe that it's very instrumental in feeding Africa in the future. So we preserve from there, we share knowledge with the young people, we bring children in these areas. However small the garden is, but the biggest output of these small places is the knowledge we share. Also, uh, many times uh, we have realized that we really lacked uh, important and also uh, young energetic leaders in Africa who see um, the food system in a holistic way who look at farming or agriculture in a more uh, uh, sustainable way or in a, a, a more holistic way. And also leaders who look beyond the farm but also look at the whole uh, gastronomic aspect uh, of, uh, uh, of food. And from these small gardens, because we have a leadership structure that's coming up from the ground, from the bottom, Young people are taking a lead in changing their communities through food. So these gardens are very 
are places where leaders are born, leaders are made. And uh, these are not made from top down, but they are made from bottom up because from a garden coordinator, the person who takes the lead to start the garden uh, brings up other people to form uh, a structure, a leadership structure like the chairperson of the garden, the coordinator, the technical expert from within the community. And these grow up to the regional level, to the national level, and also to the Pan-African level and throughout the whole continent uh, where we have people who have taken the lead to come together and discuss the future of food in Africa. And this, the small gardens have a very political, they send out a very political message about the importance of the African land to Africans and also the will of Africans to use land that is in their close proximity. And uh, it's also a sign of resistance. Every small garden in, we have in Africa is a sign of resistance to uh, injustices as far as land is concerned, like land grabbing and also the free giveaway of resources, uh, natural resources to foreign companies, to big foreign investments. So it's through these gardens that we show our resistance peacefully by cultivating the communities and also when uh, we are using the gardens to build solidarity and also unity among communities. Uh, many times, many years in Africa, people used to work together. Families could come together on common resources. They work together, but uh, during colonial times, there was this system of divide and rule where families, communities were not allowed to communicate. So many systems broke down, and through the, the community gardens, now you have five to ten families coming together, share knowledge, share ideas, share labor, resources, and also share outcomes of the gardens. And this is uh, not only helping to put fresh vegetables on the plate for these families, but also it, it's cultivating a community. It's cultivating a ground of common understanding between the families, and in this case, you expect a lot of peace and understanding among these family members. And this is the culture we want to carry on if we want to feed Africa. How did you get into gardening uh, or farming? Which word would you use? I, I, I would prefer use farming, yes, not gardening. But it all comes to the same, but depending on how you use the term. Mm -hmm. But... Uh, I grew up in a farming community, in a farming family, very close to the lake, but my family is not uh, involved so much in fishing. Traditionally, we have uh, families which are fish uh, in the fishing business, and also we have families which are raising animals, and also those which are predominantly farmers. So I come from a farming tradition, and I grew up with my parents who are small-scale farmers growing a lot of stuff and um, I was introduced to farming at a very young age by my mother, by my mom uh, but again along in the schools when we started going to school something was different uh, using farming as a punishment if you come late, if you speak local language apart from English at the school you're sent to dig to put down a big bush and also grow food for teachers in the end, you don't see the, wow. the, the output. So it, 
for me as a person who saw my mom sweating every day to produce food this was something ridiculous and uh, I, I I was always in disagreement with this system and I wanted to see happy farmers happy small scale producers and uh, my inspiration was uh, or motivation was to fight this kind of activity in the school and uh, at home I used to, to to take all this kind of stress off follow my mom to the garden so at the growing up in this area I went to the university I chose to study agriculture just to get a way of uh, changing the system and I chose to put to choose a, I chose a career in farming in agriculture so after at the university I started working with the school children and also young people in the communities to create gardens to cultivate interest among young people and my also uh, aspiration was to have my own farm to practice what i always thought about and also to carry on the family tradition to be on the farm uh, to dig to take care of chicken to take care of goats and uh, uh, i had to work hard to be to see that yes i physically go to my farm once in a while but i also have to do this work of bringing hope to many young africans out there to talk to them to give them technical advice and uh, this is something which i'm so much passionate about and it is something i do 365 days a year how did you connect with the slow food movement uh my story with the slow food movement is a dates back in 2007 but i joined slow food in 2008 but it started happening in 2007 when i was at the university at my young age in the university work uh, so brilliant so intelligent and working with the agronomy department uh, i was given to coordinate a lot of activities a lot of projects uh-huh. um, by the university and this one of the projects involved uh, developing as a hybrid variety of maize and um yeah, it was uh, promoted so much as a high yielding maize variety which is uh, capable of solving hunger and uh, food crisis problems in different communities yes this maize was uh, high yielding and i got a chance to work with different uh, communities uh, that they can take up the variety which always grew in a monoculture uh, it's in in a simple term it was uh, an enemy of uh, biodiversity because you could only grow it alone not in a mixture with other crops if you want to get the high yield so i did this job very well to talk to the communities to adopt this kind of maize and uh, uh something happened <clears throat> because uh, many times we don't have clear weather prediction or forecast results uh there we expected it to rain a lot uh in 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 the late uh, part of the year in 2007 but a big drought came um and uh, many farmers lost their crop and they 
system in different African countries, especially in Uganda, we have traditional farming systems which are not based on single crops, but they are based on different crops because of the weather changes and the patterns which are sometimes not predictable. So for the farmers who had adopted this new variety, new hybrid variety, they lost a lot. And when I went back to talk to them, I felt something is missing. I felt they are um, disappointed. Yeah. Yeah. And because they, you, you, here you put all your life on one crop and it fails. You have 10 children in a family. You have to feed them. And now the result was not desirable. So I started thinking so much what could have gone wrong. But what was missing in the system was this biodiversity. The, the diversification of the farms. Because normally the African farming systems take care of this problem, that we do not normally grow a single crop in a stand. We mix, especially in central Uganda where we have the banana coffee vanilla system, where we have uh, the millet potato system. It, it clearly shows that we don't depend on one crop in a season. Uh, so uh, after listening to the producers, after listening to the farmers, I started thinking about that kind of farming which I grew up seeing everywhere, that kind of farming which makes families survive even during hard periods, the farming that is based on the local resources, that is based on uh, biodiversity, the diversification of crops, the farming that also allows animals to interact with crops. So we started working together with the farmers to change back to that kind of farming system, which is accustomed to the African environment, and also working and building on the knowledge of the producers, the wisdom of the producers. And this is the work which we started pushing a lot. We joined with the organic movement uh, to in the western uh, part of Uganda, and I started looking out to people who are promoting biodiversity, people who are promoting community, people who are promoting fraternity in the food system, which is very important uh, uh, to, to, to sustain the future of food. And among the organizations which I came across was Terra Madre and uh, Slow Food. So I, I felt it very important to connect with slow food because they had very interesting and uh, uh, important aspects they are looking at. The biodiversity, the traditions, the heritage uh, behind each and every crop, the customs uh, of, of different uh, foods in different areas, the importance of culture in the, uh, in the food world. So we connected very well with uh, Slow Food, and in 2008, I paid my first membership to Slow Food. And it's a decision I made and I will never regret, because this, the change which we are all working for right now is what I always desired. And now I got a perfect global family to push for, for, for this important change in the food system, to push for food system that doesn't look at the output only but also look at the input looks at the system that believes that food is a result of seed community and environment it's not only a result of seed 
but also a result of seed, uh, community and environment. Because many times we are living in a system that only respects the, in, the, the seed and the food, but that ignores the importance of the environment and the importance of the community, the people who are producing this food. So that's how I connected, and I attended my first uh, Tramadre event in 2008 to share more with the gardens which I was working on, to share more with the communities I was working on. And also, I was inspired by the defense of biodiversity, the work Slow Food is doing to defend biodiversity, the arc of taste, the presidia, and also the Tramadre network, the communities to work with. So that's how I got involved with Slow Food until today. So... This is not your first time in the U.S., um, and I'm I'm wondering, you know, from where you sit, what do we get wrong about Ugandans? What do we get wrong about Africans? What are Africans? What are some of the misunderstandings that come up most frequently in your travels? Uh, many times when you look at the <coughs> social media, the also at, at the media, other forms of media like on TVs, when you read in the newspapers, uh, many times there is a lot of negative publicity about Africa, a continent. Many people call Africa a dark continent. Uh, there is a lot of information about Ebola, about um, other diseases like malaria. There is a lot of news coming about wars. There is a lot of... Uh, news about hunger, about famine in Africa. But this, yes, it, it happens. It's there because we live in the most difficult part of the world. We live on the oldest continent with the youngest population, the, the, the biggest young population. Uh, but again, there is a lot of interesting things happening in Africa. There is a lot of interesting, good news about Africa. Yes, we are currently faced with a lot of problems of land grabbing, which is also not given a lot of publicity because it's a business to some people in the developed world. But again, we have uh, a revolution happening, a, a generation of young Africans who want to develop to, to see the continent developed, who wants to see a change. We talk, so we talk the, the media talks so much about the hunger. They don't talk about a lot of interesting projects like the 10,000 gardens in Africa. Uh, they don't talk so much about uh, the new leaders who have come up to change Africa. So this is the wrong information which is normally uh, given on the negative things which happen in Africa. And there is a lot of uh, published about the negative things in Africa, which is very painful uh, to us because we are doing a lot of work there. We are traveling a lot between countries, between communities, uh, also among uh, families to share, to preserve. There is also a lot of rich, rich interesting knowledge, traditional knowledge down there in Africa of which, yes, many people believe in science. Uh, we are not anti-science, but science alone and technology may not solve all the problems. We also need to blend this technology with the traditional knowledge that is found there in Africa. And also we have to take care of the environment. 
which is down there in Africa, and to understand how to deal with the different situations. And also, we, we, we need to give young leaders in Africa a chance to explain to the rest of the world what Africa is. It's not only uh, what the journalists from the West come, uh, who come to Africa report that is right. It's also, we need also a chance to explain the good things happening in Africa. The, 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 the way we are defending our land against rich economies which are grabbing a lot of land, it's also very interesting by teaching African families from within Africa how to utilize this land, how to preserve uh, the, 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 the Africa's best ecosystems instead of giving them away for European or Chinese or Western developer. So this is uh, work going on, but always not given a lot, of, uh, a lot of publicity, but it's happening. We have a lot of interesting and positive things happening in Africa. So the 10,000 Garden Project, um, that's a lot of gardens. Um, how are you doing? Where are you at with it? How many gardens are there? How do you keep track of them? How do you start them? I'm like, walk me through it. There are 10,000 gardens in Africa uh, created, cultivated, and managed by African families, African communities. They are also planned by us, the Africans. So that's the first sustainability issue with the project. It's not a top-down that someone from Europe comes and creates a garden. It's not a top-down that someone from U.S. comes and creates a garden. So it's, uh, the idea is conceived by the families, the African families, or by the school, the parents, the teachers, or the children in the school, that they start a garden. So we have a team, like I said, the leader, the first thing we try to strengthen is the leadership. Right now we have uh, more, more than 1,800, actually we are close to 2,000 gardens which are adopted. These are the ones on paper and also physically appearing on the ground. But again we have more and more gardens which are born of out of these uh, community garden like for example if you uh, in in greater massacre region of uganda we have 24 in this region we have 24 officially registered gardens under the 10000 gardens in africa project but these of 24 we have 16 community gardens and eight school gardens but when you look at the school uh, each of the eight school gardens they they involve more than 20 uh, active participants in each of the garden. But again, these active participants, they all the knowledge which they generate and share in the garden, they have created small similar gardens in their homes. This is the multiplier effect. And these small gardens, we may not have them re officially registered on paper, but uh, on the ground, in terms of coordination, we are aware of them and we know what is happening and how they started up. And also in the community garden, yes, it's a common place where 5, 10, 20 families come together, but each of these families also start a similar garden in their homes to transfer the knowledge which they share from the community garden. So 
we keep track of the of these uh, gardens through our coordination team on the ground and these are the leaders we have uh this is how the coordination is done we have the garden coordinator normally the person who gets the inspiration to start a garden in a community or in a school and this person uh invites other people like-minded people to cultivate this garden and this will become the garden coordinator and once we have 10 to 15 gardens in a part of the country it becomes a region and these 15 coordinators of the gardens they will sit with the members of the garden and from the coordinators the 15 coordinators they choose a regional coordinator and the committee that will take care of the regional gardens or the gardens in that region so they now take their leadership to a, a much higher level that is in a in a region on a regional level in a country and now every year all the regional coordinators and the garden coordinators meet in a refresher training which they do by themselves it doesn't need a lot of experts because they have the knowledge they have they can share the knowledge so when they meet uh in a year all of them they choose a national coordinator who will be following up and who will be working with this team which is created on the ground and uh now all national coordinators they meet a lot in different countries in africa and also when we have a slow food event like in in italy or in another country and the african garden coordinators are there we meet and also discuss the future of the gardens so this is the level uh uh of coordination which we have and this is how we follow up we have uh uh the slow food international office in bra also has a special desk which looks at africa uh projects and on this special desk on africa we have <coughs> two people who are facilitating communication within africa among the african coordinators and these people permanently sit in the office in italy the reason for this is that uh, many people will agree with me communication in africa is still very difficult uh, especially the internet coverage is not that good uh, roads are also in a sorry state and it's it's very costly to fly from uganda to nigeria than flying from uganda to Amsterdam. So this is the, the the also the problem we have in Africa. But again there if we have uh, someone always collecting information from one country and another country and share it with other people it's very important especially when that person is in a country or in a part of the world where communication is very easy. So it becomes very very easy to share information through this kind of sorts but and now also this kind of leadership which we have developed from the gardens is we are seeing national associations or slow food national associations grow in africa recently we launched the slow food convivial association of kenya uh, where we have also a coordination center for the gardens in kenya and also other countries like tanzania now we in the yeah, end of this month we are launching the slow food uganda 
Association, which is also a national coordination center with uh, more improved communication facilities, thanks to our, the supporters of the 10,000 gardens in Africa. We can have now these facilities to, facil uh, to facilitate communication amongst us. And it involves a lot of physical trips mm -hmm. uh, to each and every garden. In Uganda, we have 134 gardens. In Kenya, we have 200 gardens. In Ethiopia, we have 100, just to mention, but a few, 135. But the national coordinator, through the regional coordinators and the garden coordinators, will make a physical trip to each and every garden through there to wow. follow up on the progress and also to discuss, to share knowledge, and also to bring, uh, to identify the, <clears throat> the, the, the challenges with each and every garden. And, this kind of, and, and also to bring up this kind of interconnection. But also then uh, the rest of the year, the regional coordinators and the garden coordinators are doing a very great job of updating the national office about the progress, the development of the gardens. One thing that clearly indicates the importance of the gardens is the rate at which communities are asking to open up new gardens every day. We get a, a very an overwhelming number of requests to join the Slow Food Gardens program. And this is by the communities, by the schools, and now by the families. We have extended families in Africa where you find one family has 45 people living in one one area and they are very old people they are very young people and families which feel they should pass on their farming traditions they are free to join the slow food gardens program and we have this cross-generational knowledge transfer between the old people in the family and the young young generation in the family so the rate at which communities are asking to open up gardens is a very positive is a very positive aspect to us that yes it's a, it's a, the, this project is very important to communities to families and we this is where we get the energy every day to keep to going yeah. yeah to get going to move on with the project i um man i wish we had a little bit more time i want to um you know, Richard mentioned uh, some of the cities and, and some of the things that have been impacting some of the American cities that you're visiting, you know, New Orleans, Petal, Mississippi, Sacramento, Detroit. I, I feel like those of us here in the States are often surprised to hear the state of the food systems in some of those locations. But I'm wondering for you in your travels uh, around the US like what has surprised you about our food or farming system that you weren't expecting or was different than you thought it was going to be uh right now i've not uh moved so much but i know uh i'm i'm i'm, I'm expecting to uh to find uh I don't know how I can explain, but I know most of the the, the, the the food system here is based a lot on technology, and um, there is too much science uh, in the in the production systems, and also uh, for the consumers here are very. That this is my expectation. No, this is my thinking. That they are very conscious about. Uh, uh, some consumers are very conscious about the. 
toxicity levels while others really don't care uh, what they about what they eat or how it was produced and uh, another section has a very big fear of where things are moving to uh, these are people with a conscious mind of uh, how quick fast and rapid the production system is moving uh, uh, and here it's a, there is a very, very big mixture of things. Uh, there is a lot of, uh, like I talked about technology, there, are, there is a lot of uh, technology also without ethics. This is my thinking. But uh, still, like, uh, there are some parts of U.S. which are facing the same problems like we face in Africa. Uh, access to land, access to resources, and the access to land also comes with a lot of land grabbing where um, those who have money are developing um, uh, their economic arms at the expense of those who may not have a lot of money but need resources in the same way. So uh, this is the comparison I can make. Yeah, I'll be curious to hear after you've completed your tour um, what stands out and how things matched up. Richard, I want to give a shout out to the uh, W.K. Kellogg and the Fertile Foundation, is that right, who made the trip possible for Eddie? Yeah, we were very lucky that uh, the W.K. Kellogg, the Fertile Foundation, and Lavazza helped to really rally around this idea of us bringing an emerging leader from Africa to connect with emerging food leaders in the U.S., and especially those coming from communities of color who are facing the double challenge of food access, you know, the, the food deserts, the inability to access safe, affordable, um, delicious food, but also not having the control to be able to decide what foods we grow, what's, what foods we eat, what food traditions get preserved versus become overwhelmed and homogenized by the, the very same forces that, uh, that Eddie uh, eloquently described. Um, the, the extractive economy, the, the, the large-scale, unethical science converging with markets to um, undermine traditional knowledge, to um, make it increasingly difficult for small farmers who get squeezed out to survive because of the logic that they're no longer um, financially viable that uh, the speed and the, 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 the f ferocity of the market is undermining especially black land loss in the Deep South. So we'll be meeting with uh, a heroic community of farmers in um, southern Mississippi who have um, multi-generational farmers who's, who have found that the market around them has shifted so dramatically. And uh, the industrial mechanisms that they used to be able to play into, supermarkets, have uh, bypassed them because of the globalization of food. So it has been their linkage with urban consumers and with a growing uh, acknowledgement that some of our food traditions and the biodiversity that has grown is maybe their ticket for survival so that the farmland doesn't just stay in the same family but that there is a future and a new direction that harnesses some of the old ideas. Um, I, I think it'll be I, I, too, am very excited to see where are the linkages as uh, we share experiences from around the world um, as we face um, really power 
the, the issue of, of what role does uh, food play in power relations in America? Well, I think I, I'm definitely really struck um, by so much of what you said, Eddie, and so many parallels between what you're experiencing across the continent of Africa and what we're experiencing here in the U.S. In many ways, I feel like more alike than different. Um, and, and I think about that, that moment of membership for you. And, and, you know, Heritage Radio Network is a membership organization. Slow Food is a membership organization. And in some ways, just, you know, deciding to become a member, I mean, for you, obviously, took your life in this totally different path but i think saying like hey i want to be part of this community and and i'm going to you know put a little bit of money where my mouth is because i want to stand up for those things i think it's uh it's exciting to see i'm not promising anyone else out there that if you join slow food you're going to be the next international vice president (laughs) i think eddie probably has a few other qualifications but i am promising you entree to a very kind of special community, a global community of people doing amazing work, creating the next generations of leaders. I think um, I'm just really excited to follow follow your trip. Um, and unfortunately, we're just about out of time. So, Richard, Eddie, I have to say thank you for joining us. It's been such a pleasure. Well, thank you for allowing us to um, to hang out with you, Aaron, in, on this important radio network. Thank you. Um. If you follow Heritage Radio Network, um, uh, we'll be seeing a little bit of Eddie throughout his trip. They're doing a couple of days of Instagram takeover. You can also follow them um, on Twitter or Slow Foods um, Instagram. They're at Slow Food HQ and at Slow Food USA. So definitely um, take a peek. You can learn more about the 1000 Gardens in Africa project by visiting them on Facebook. It's just 1000 gardens in africa or you can visit the website www.slowfoodfoundation.com to to learn more and and get engaged and and support that work guys we're going to take a short break and we'll be back with the escape maker segment uh stay tuned hang tight we'll be right back This is the story of men and women who shed not only their clothes, but also their... Visit a farm. Log on to escapemaker.com for more ideas on local weekend getaways and day trips, including orchards, farms, and wineries. Come by Escape Maker's Yellow Tent and Grow NYC's Green Markets and pick up a guide to local agritourism escapes to the Green Market's own farmers and producers. The guide will be updated seasonally to feature farms, wineries, and destinations in New York City, New York State, New Jersey, Vermont, and Pennsylvania. Plus, Escape Maker will offer overnight packages to these destinations so you get the full experience. No car? No problem. Escape Maker features plenty of ideas for car-free getaways, including discounts via Amtrak. There's no better time to explore outside the city. Soak up the fresh air and scenery like a butterfly and support your local farmer. Log on to escapemaker.com to get inspired and make your escape through the net. All right, we are back. What a monster first half. We are joined on the line for our Escape Maker segment by Chris Harp of Honeybee Lives. Chris, welcome. Thank you. Good morning. Afternoon, afternoon. afternoon. I know. Who's keeping track? <laughs> it's a podcast. People could be listening at any time. 
Good. So I I have a sneaking suspicion that we may have called you in away from a hive uh, for the talk today. So maybe you can give us a little bit of a sense of what's happening in the lives of bees in the Northeast um, in the early November time, especially when it's so warm. Uh, what we're what we're dealing with is something that I've never experienced in in 26 years of beekeeping. Uh, in that we've had. Uh, and everything is, you know, little ecosystems, but um, or micro systems. But uh, in a huge portion of the Hudson Valley, there has been a almost absolute zero nectar flow uh, this entire summer, as well as into this fall because of the lack of rain. So what we're dealing with is hives that just have not been able to to build up the the uh, the workforce to have enough of a, a thermal mass to handle the winter. Uh, we also have situations where the, the bees just don't have enough nectar coming in, you know, again, to put the honey away to have their winter pantry ready, as well as to have the nectar coming in to make their what we call bee bread and feed their larvae to create baby bees. It's been intense of having to uh, feed bees um, and, and, you know, have it so that they'll be strong enough to go through the winter. Wow. So um, are, should we be concerned for what we're going to be seeing in the spring? Our hive's not going to make it through? Correct. I, I, I'm, I, and I pray that I'm wrong, but I'm predicting the greatest loss in the Northeast ever uh, from starvation, uh, as well as from, you know, if, if not starvation, from, from the bees freezing, because, again, there's not enough bees in the colony that all hold on to each other. It's what we call cluster. They when it goes below 40 degrees night and day for three days in a row, then they all come together and they all hold each other, you know, in, in a big cluster of intertwined legs and bodies to, to, to stay warm. A honeybee currently is, uh, when you see a bee flying around, she's 98 degrees. Uh, when the bees go in the cluster of those three days and nights at below 40, they cluster to stay warm and they shut their body temperature down to 42 degrees. And they subsist on that through the winter, eating little bits of honey to maintain the energy and circling around. The bees that just got honey have more energy. They can go to the outside of this cluster. The ones that haven't eaten yet can go to the inside and move slowly towards the comb to eat some honey, then go to the outside. It's a rotating process. Uh, But, again, they need thermal mass that I'm concerned about. Quite a few of my colonies not having enough bees to pull this off. So... As a as a beekeeper and us as a population that is almost entirely dependent for our food supply on bees, what do we do? What we can do is is uh, be aware of of the situations that are going on in the in the environment for the bees. Um, we can per se assist by helping feed them, but be very knowledgeable about what you feed them. Um, you know, there's there's certain recipes you could find on our on our website at honeybeelives.org that can give you, you know, a recipe for what we call BT, which is a, a nutrition that <clears throat> that a person can feed to the bees. But you <clears throat> need to know how to put those, you know, what kind of containers to put them into so they don't drown. You need to know what kind of substances to use. Only cane sugar. Don't use granulated sugar, which means if it says granulated sugar on a five-pound bag of sugar, then it's sugar beet sugar, mm-hmm. which, gives, which gives the bees diarrhea. 
even though it looks and tastes like sugar, it says sugar, but it's but it gives the bees diarrhea if it's sugar beet versus cane. And all these little things, you know, are are things that that we can do to to assist them. But don't try to assist them and, and make things worse. Go, go the wrong way. Don't make it worse. Yeah. Well, I guess so that it, kind of like brings us to, you know, a lot of the work you do, you know, aside from obviously being a, an organic beekeeper yourself and helping kind of like manage and tend, you know, almost 200 colonies and locations across New York and Connecticut, you know, your, your organization through Honeybee Lives, you guys teach classes on beekeeping and and help kind of like add to this community knowledge around how to raise and care for bees. And for folks who who haven't been lucky enough to attend your classes, maybe you can give us a little bit of an outline of what types of classes you offer and where maybe is the best spot for folks who uh, are just beginning their relationship with honeybees. Um, Well, we've got, again, our website at, you know, honeybeelives.org. Our, I'll give you a description of our, our classes. It's broken down into two days, and, and, and my classes are in, it, per se intense. It's 16 hours. It's not a little four-hour class. Wow. It, I go in depth. Uh, so it's two eight-hour days, and the, the first class is the intro to organic beekeeping and how to plant a new hive for spring, and it's uh, learn about the basic requirements and responsibilities for organic beekeeping, understand the community of a hive, uh, the tools involved, uh, the selection of the site of where to put a hive, uh, where you can obtain honeybees and equipment, understanding the naturalist approach uh, to their honeybees' needs, uh, and we introduce the class, you know, nur- uh, nurturing ways of, of keeping bees and the philosophy behind what the bees need. The second class, the Sunday class, is uh, on hive congruency, uh, the design and benefit of the colony. Uh, we also you know, talk about top bar hives, which has become big in the area, uh, honeybee health. And one of the most in- important things about beekeeping is disease management uh, as well as parasite management that affect the honeybees. Um, and we also certainly touch into the things that are really giving us, I mean, we've all heard the term CCD, and, and we have got more than enough scientific evidence to link us to what's, calling, what's causing colony collapse disorder and <clears throat> different chemicals that are out there in the environment that are afflicting the bees. So we need people to become more aware of things that they plant, things that they use, uh, that they don't contain these chemicals that the bees bring back to their hive and then eat it and feed it to their babies, causing a demise. So who can be a beekeeper? I mean, can I, in my apartment here in Brooklyn, or if I'm in the suburbs, or I'm in the country, like... Um, is there, is there kind of, is beekeeping something that anyone can do anywhere or? Absolutely. Um, it's, you need a two foot by two foot space to put a beehive on. Uh, we teach classes in Brooklyn, uh, in February. Uh, and in those classes, you know, we, many of the people have, you know, the weekend houses up in the Hudson Valley, but they also have many of my students are, you know, putting beehives on the rooftop in Brooklyn, in Manhattan, in Queens. And they're, you know, raising bees, you know, 11 stories high on the rooftop. There's a beehive that is able to to pull it off and go out and find the the nectar and the pollen they need to to live their life. 
So um, also some like kind of practical real life advice for folks who are afraid of bees or you're like out in a picnic with someone and they're freaking out because the bee is buzzing around. What, never, what do I say? Oh, what do I say? You, Karen, yeah, it's, it, well, it's never a honeybee. Okay. It's, it's buzzing around your picnic. It's a yellow jacket. Honeybees have a single source. It's nectar or honey. You'll never see a honeybee near a soda pop bottle near a uh, hamburger or a hot dog or any of those things. Those are never honeybees. They're always yellow jackets. Yellow jackets are carnivores. Honeybees are vegetarians. Uh, and honeybees are only, again, only going after nectar and, and honey, nothing else. They do not go after sugared drinks like a, like a yellow jacket would. So the yellow jackets are giving honeybees a, a little bit of a bad name, I guess. Oh, you bet. <laughs> <laughs> They are. <laughs> well, Chris, um, we are we are just about kind of out of time. If folks want to find out more, obviously they can visit you at honeybeelives.org. Um, it sounds like we can find you in Brooklyn in February. Any, mm-hmm. um, I guess I, I want to end on like a culinary note. Any um, favorite honey tips to send our listeners uh, out with today? Always buy raw organic honey. Uh, it has the the nutrition. It also has the health benefits. Honey is one of the most incredibly healthy products there is that gives your body so many different enzymes and all that our body needs. And when we go to the store and we buy some of your name brand honeys, uh, they've almost all been heated above 120 degrees so that they fill up the bottles quickly like water. But when you heat honey above 120 degrees, <clears throat> you, you're, you're killing the enzymes that make honey healthful. It still tastes sweet, still looks like honey, etc., but it doesn't have the beneficials uh, that a raw honey would have. So have people look for raw honey. Uh, have them try to find raw honey from somebody that, that is, per se, as organic as you can be so it doesn't have other things in the honey. Right. Awesome. Well, it's definitely a delicious uh, homework assignment for all Farm Report listeners. Chris, thank you so much. Thank you so much, Erin. So that's it, folks. You have made your way through another episode of The Farm Report. I really appreciate you uh, listening out there, wherever you are. would love to hear from you. Um, if you have a second, pop by the iTunes store, leave a review. I uh, would love your thoughts on things you like, things you don't like, um, you know, or simply click a couple of stars, whatever feels right. You can find me on Twitter. I'm Erin underscore Fairbanks. You can find us at Heritage underscore Radio. We are officially kicking off our fall fundraising drive, so you will be hearing membership pitches from me. Um, Don't spend it being guilty the next two months. Make your donation today, then you got it totally crossed off your list. Any amount helps. Uh, I would love if folks out there could become a sustaining member. Five bucks a month makes you a $60 sustaining member. You know, you wouldn't miss uh, one cup of coffee a month, but you might miss this episode of The Farm Report. And would love to hear that you were out there listening and cared to click that donate button. You can leave a little note to say that the farm report sent you. And then you'll make me look good in front of the bosses and other hosts, which, let's be honest, I care a little bit about. Um, Thank you. And have a great day. That's all I got. Awkward output. Thank you, Liz. Save me with the music. I'll see you guys next week. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. 
You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.